What's up, everybody? Today is Tuesday, October 6, 2020. This is A Talk in the Attic, and I'm your host, Kirk Ross, coming to you from our crow's nest of a recording studio here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Thank you so much for your continued tuning in to this unique, perhaps odd, show. Yes, that's right. I'm aware that this podcast format is a bit eccentric. If you're tuning in for the first time, then please accept my sincerest salutations when I say emphatically, welcome to the attic, which is both a figurative description of my brain as well as the actual venue for the physical space that sits atop our house and serves as the official soundstage for the show. The aforementioned weird format goes as follows. Tuesday shows, like what you're listening to now, are roughly 20-minute shorts featuring but one cast member, me. And within these Tuesday vignettes exists a wide range of topics. Usually, I recall formative stories from my past with a comedic bend that typically results in some applicable life lesson that we can all consider as we move through our increasingly ambiguous lives in a world that grows in absurdity with each passing day. By contrast, Friday episodes are all about the guests and feature in-depth interviews with whomever I was lucky enough to host that week and inviting unique and widely varying folks from across the spectrum, we get real organic conversations, and you listeners will hopefully find commonalities that will help motivate and inspire you all to be your best selves. These Fridays are generally in the hour-long range. They're the big ones, which is exactly why I use big capital letters for the interview episodes, which you'll see in whatever app you're listening to the show now. On the flip side, you'll notice that the Tuesday shorts are titled with only lowercase characters, As I said early on in the Tuesday shorts, small episodes, small letters. Keeping things simple here in the attic. Enough of the shop talk. Let's get into today's show. Yesterday morning, my mom called me around 8 a.m., the perfect time for a phone conversation, right? But it was a good talk, one that I truly enjoyed having, but I won't lie. It wasn't a perfect phone call. I mean, how could it be perfect? There wasn't even a quid pro quo. The reality is most of the discussion was great, but one topic did leave a little to be desired. As is customary when I find myself conferring with friends and family these days, I asked my mom to offer up the very first idea she had when I asked her point blank, so mom, what should I focus on for this week's show? And her response was one that has had me giggling ever since. Hmm, let's see, what should you do this week's show on? She was clearly stalling as she racked her brain. Great ideas take a little time in the oven, after all. I know. Do an episode about how it's cozy season. What season did you say? Cozy? Yeah, cozy season. I just love when it gets here. Fall temperature comes in. It gets darker earlier. Cozy season. Reluctantly, I continued. Okay, there there could be something there. Oh, there's a bunch there. Just think about getting wrapped up in a warm blanket, maybe drinking a hot cocoa, watching a football game. I just love it. It's my favorite time of year, Kirky. Cozy season. Before I lose all of you new listeners, I'll end the speculation for you now. Today's episode will not be about cozy season. I'm sure there's an episode somewhere in there, sure, but just not an episode of this particular show. Which brings me to our first fake advertisement that we've had in a while, this time for an entirely made-up podcast project called Snooze Fest with Diane Ross. If you're a fan of podcasts, but an even bigger fan of sleeping, then subscribe to the podcast that castcritics.com called, quote-unquote, even more effective than Ambien. 
I'm talking, of course, about the latest addition to the pod world, Snooze Fest with Diane Ross. Here's an excerpt from this week's episode. Mm, it's darker than I remember. A little colder, too. I wonder why. Maybe a hot cocoa would do the trick. I walk over to the stove. I fill up the kettle. I light the burner. It got up the heat just as you'd expect. Really nothing of note to mention here. Soon I was clutching my number one grandma mug with my two hands, drawing in deep breaths of the chocolatey steam. Ah, that's nice, I thought to myself. Now I think I'll describe the texture of my favorite blanket, which has somehow found its way around my waist. I'm on the couch now, almost by some autonomous reaction, and that's when it hit me, as it does every October. Cozy season has snuck up from behind summer's cloak. Cozy season, it's nice to see you again. And if you'll excuse me, it's time to get cozy. Like I said, maybe there's an episode there, just not an episode of this show. But that doesn't mean the advice from my lovely mother didn't inspire some ideas for today's show. I mean, she's right. It is cozy season, a.k.a. autumn, a.k.a. fall. And fall brings with it a brand of Americana that soothes the soul, doesn't it? Big game and bird hunters alike take to the woods across the land. Football players fasten up their chin straps. Political smear campaigns rage on. Hmm, hunting, football, and politics. Quite a menagerie of disparate topics, no? How could I ever tie these disjointed subjects into a tidy 20-minute show? Some of you, at least one of you, is thinking, Cozy season would be a great way to tie a bow on this episode, Kirky. Let's see, though. Hunting, football, and politics. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Oh, and what's that you say? Old-timey accents, too? I love old-timey accents. Okay, then. It's settled. Today's show is going to be all about the one, the only, Theodore Roosevelt. Yes, we'll speak softly and carry a big stick, but first, let's start the show. way back, and I mean way back, to October of 1858, or the cozy season of 162 years ago, when things were generally less comfortable for everyone. Less cozy. But it surprised me to learn that Theodore Roosevelt Jr. was actually born into an affluent family in Manhattan, New York. Of course, a silver spoon is a near must-have when it comes to presidential resumes and presidential aspirations, but there's something about the Teddy Roosevelt in my mind that doesn't quite align with an Upper East Side upbringing. If you're like me, you're picturing the man's man character who would eventually become America's 26th president. You're likely thinking of a man who, a couple decades before Washington, spent his time hunting bison in the Great Plains of the Dakota Territory, before the area was even granted North and South statehood. Now, that said, Teddy was far from an authentic cowboy or frontiersman. How could he be, given his safety net of wealth and power waiting for him back east, 
His plans to supplement his bison hunting with a cattle ratching investment ultimately failed after a disastrous winter in 1887, pushing him back to New York with a new set of ideals. While he was out west, he observed issues of the western frontier that was of little interest to the wealthy political elite back home or in the capital. Of the historical herdsmen of the West, Roosevelt is quoted as saying that they possess few of the emasculated milk-and-water moralities admired by the pseudo-philanthropists, but he does possess, to a very high degree, the stern, manly qualities that are invaluable to a nation. If we run through a language modernizer, that would sound something like, cowboys aren't necessarily moral, and they're definitely not nice, but they're tough sons of bitches, and our country needs to toughen up right now. Quick sidebar, yes, that was me doing my best Teddy impression. Similar to his Rushmore neighbor, Lincoln, it seems that Roosevelt's vocal attributes are a little higher in pitch and cleaner in timber than you might expect. So when he said, speak softly and carry a big stick, he wasn't kidding, at least not about the speaking part. An intellect with an Ivy League education, Roosevelt began writing field guides for Frontier magazines and completed something like three books while he was out there. When it was all said and done, his time out west began shaping the man that we all imagine when we think about POTUS 26. His return to New York ushered in a new life of politically active roles in public service. He held a number of random positions, including, get this, head of the New York Police Commissioner Board, a position he used to oversee major reform in the police force there, calling for physical and mental evaluations of officers, pushing for merit-based advancements rather than politically motivated ones, and fought widespread police corruption while increasing officer accountability. Hmm. Soon thereafter, Rosie headed to Washington, where he accepted a post in the McKinley administration as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, serving essentially as the de facto decision-maker of the entire armada with the lame duck John D. Long, don't even get me started on that sucker, holding the top rank, but deferring to Roosevelt in most cases. As tensions with Spain intensified in Cuba in 1898, Roosevelt was second in command to 1st U.S. Volunteer Cavalry, better known as Roosevelt's Rough Riders. And these dudes lived up to the title. It seems like Roosevelt's unique combination of interests was reflected in his recruiting, resulting in enlistment by Texas Rangers, Glee Club singers, Ivy League football players, more on that later, and Native Americans. Basically, these dudes were a disorganized but tough crew of volunteers looking to protect American interests. Many of us know the famous hip-hop anthem by DMX, but I bet you didn't know that that same Rough Riders anthem was not an original by DMX. At least not in the attic, that is, because here, Teddy Roosevelt wrote that tune as a battle cry for his rough-and-tumble regiment. In fact, I dug up a recording of the moment that this idea came to Roosevelt some 120 years ago. Boys, we will stop, we will drop, we'll shut them down, and then we'll open up shop. Oh, no, this is how Rough Riders roll. I mean, come on, DMX and Teddy Roosevelt bits? Show me another podcast where such an unholy alliance might form. What's crazy, as I've researched his life story, is the fact that T. Rose climbed the ladder of national politics and quickly. In 1898, he was second in command of a ragtag group of militiamen. By 1899, just one year later, he becomes governor of New York, the economic center of the country. In November of that very same year, on the eve of the presidential election, 
Vice President Garrett Hobart died, leaving an opening for an aspiring 41-year-old New Yorker. He reluctantly became McKinley's VP running mate, but not before Roosevelt threw some jabs at what he considered a powerless position in the VP role. But he didn't have to wait long. Because less than two years after the death of former VP, McKinley was shot and ultimately died, leaving the presidency vacant and ready to be filled by Teddy. Hell yeah, playa, get it, boy. This is how Rough Riders roll. This isn't the place for it, but doesn't it seem a little, I don't know, fishy that all these people around the ambitious young Roosevelt started dropping like flies? But I digress. Roosevelt's presidency is marked by numerous successes that seemingly break party lines left and right. He was a Republican president for his two-plus terms in office, sure, but it's a far cry from the politics of today. Teddy was successful in busting up big business trusts and regulating fair pricing into existence. He cleaned house at the post office, the land office, and the Indian service, where members of his own administration were wildly corrupt. But Teddy moved swiftly to eradicate this corruption. He saw to it that the big railroad companies were regulated such that reduced ride fare would allow the commoner to afford transportation. After reading Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, Roosevelt spearheaded the regulation of food and drugs by way of the Pure Food and Drug Act. Of course, his greatest contribution came in the most obfuscated mismatch with the modern-day GOP, his undying commitment to wildlife conservation. In his tenure as president, Roosevelt was responsible for establishing the nation's first 51 bird reserves, the first four game reserves, and 150 national forests, all of which totaled to 230 million acres. I mean, 230 million acres, that does nothing in providing reference for us, does it? That converts to 360,000 square miles. Hmm, not much better. Okay, he protected land to the tune of four times the land area of the entire state of Michigan, including the UP. In fact, his own party found his fondness for reserving federal land for conservation a bit obtrusive, blocking his legislative attempts at furthering his reach. But that's when our good friend, the executive order, T.E.O., what's up, T.O.? This is how Rough Riders roll. The executive order started showing up in Washington, Roosevelt signed over a thousand such orders, nearly as many as the first 25 presidents combined. But what a cause. As Earth's wilderness continues to disappear at an alarming rate, almost to the point of no return, I can't help but think back finally on Teddy's unapologetic approach to environmentalism. Like I said, a far cry from the environmental deregulation that defines the current administration. I could say more, but there's no need. We can all come to our own conclusions on whether we've seen progress or the opposite in the century plus since Roosevelt left office. But enough about politics, okay? And for now, enough about the wilderness. Let's talk football, a sport which is still kicking today, albeit a much different game now than it was in its early stages, which just so happened to coincide with Teddy Roosevelt's childhood. The protected, high-tempo ballet that is modern-day football was not what infant American football was all about. The sport was invented shortly after the Civil War, when you'd think the nation's appetite for violence was all but spent. But quite the opposite was true, because early football was a brutal affair. Back then, the offense had three downs to get only five yards in order to make a first down. You heard that right. They had three downs 
but only needed to get five yards. Hey, maybe the Lions could convince opposing teams to let them try the old five and three format. It doesn't take a Vince Lombardi to know that five yards over three downs hardly incentivizes forward passing. You know what else doesn't incentivize forward passing? The fact that it's illegal to pass the ball forward. And eventually, illegal to have an incomplete pass. An incomplete pass was not just a loss of down, but it's a 15-yard penalty. Oh, and did I mention there was no such rule requiring six offensive linemen? In other words, the center would control the snap, just like he does today. But instead of having his fellow hosses right next to him, they were incrementally staggered behind him to both sides, forming essentially a flying V, complete with locked elbows and a huge running start. Oh, and helmets weren't really a thing either. This all added up to the grim reality that American football was super dangerous and in hundreds of cases, deadly. By the time Roosevelt came into the public eye, many programs had canceled their football teams altogether. Social and political pressure had effectively begun to kill the same sport that killed so many of its sportsmen. While referees were part of the game, they didn't do much in the way of governance. Every play essentially became a vicious scrum that included eye-gouging, throat-punching, sack-squeezing, purple-nurples, biting, kicking, and spitting, to name a few. In 1905, the run-only playbooks combined with poor safety equipment and really no unnecessary roughness penalty, resulting in, get this, 19 on-field deaths at the collegiate football level in one year. The 1905 season had 19 on-field deaths. For context, 18 had died on the field the year prior. So this wasn't exactly out of nowhere. It should be noted that these bountiful fatalities came at a time when far less teams existed, too. So scaled up to modern-day participation, 19 fatalities ballooned to something like 300. But 19 on its own seems like a lot, doesn't it? It was in that year, 1905, that a particularly brutal demise was witnessed by thousands of onlookers when Union College halfback Harold Moore died of severe brain hemorrhaging after an opponent from NYU kicked him in the head. And that was when Roosevelt had seen enough. And in a move that again belies modern-day party lines, old Teddy used the office of the presidency to intervene in an important issue of the day. He held a football summit with some university presidents and well-renowned coaches where he admonished brutality and advocated for civility, stating, I believe in outdoor games, and I do without mind in the least that they are rough games or that those who take part in them are occasionally injured. I have no sympathy whatever with the overwrought sentimentality that would keep a young man in cotton wool, and I have a hearty contempt for him if he counts a broken arm or a collarbone as of serious consequence when balanced against the chance of showing that he possesses hardihood, physical address, and courage. Hmm. Okay, interesting attention grabber, Teddy. Broken collarbones are nothing, huh? Hmm. Aren't you the same guy that couldn't play the sport when you were a kid because you had asthma? Anyway, he continued. But when these injuries are inflicted by others, either wantonly or of set design, we are confronted by the question, not of damage to one man's body, but of damage to the other man's character. Brutality playing a game should awaken the haughtiest and most plainly shown contempt for the player guilty of it. Especially if this brutality is coupled with the low cunning and committing it without getting caught by the Empire, at least try to get away with it, he thought. I hope to see both graduate and undergraduate opinion to come to scorn such a man as one guilty of base and dishonorable action, who has no place in the regard of gallant and upright men. Okay, 
While this long-winded, old-timey speech didn't really yield any immediate rule changes, it certainly marked an inflection point in America's eventual most popular pastime. And before the following season began in 1906, major rule changes had been legislated. What I'm about to say wasn't actually said, at least not that I could find, but I'd like to think that Roosevelt dropped a dramatic call to action as follows. I, President Theodore Roosevelt, hereby declare for the safety of our upright scholars on gridirons across institutions that the 15-yard penalty for incomplete passes is immediately lifted, that we add little skinny tips or points to the end of the ball so that future quarter men may wind up in the power K throwing position before spinning the apparatus down the field, five, maybe even ten yards in the air. It is a position of this highest office that he who cannot toss the pigskin downfield is unlikely to survive the brutality of running up the gut every single play for 70 straight minutes. University leaders and umpires alike lift the incomplete forward pass penalty, and in doing so, save our boys. Following the rule changes, fatalities did decline. New rules like pass interference and staying inbounds were also soon necessary as coaches and players across the land worked to stop this newfangled, modern-day forward pass element of the game. Football has always been about cheating until there's a rule in place to stop the cheating. In fact, legendary coach Pop Warner, we all know of him as the guy that the youth leagues are all named after, but he was once a coach at the Native American institution Carlisle Industrial School in an attempt to run with powerhouse Harvard Crimson, actually sewed pouches into the front of his players' jerseys so that ball carriers could tuck the pigskin into the front pocket, hiding the location of the ball from opponents. Of course, this scheme worked even better when coupled with the brown leather football-shaped patches that he had affixed atop said pouches. Harvard was furious, responding midway through the game by, and I'm serious here, painting the balls maroon or crimson so they could blend in with their own Harvard jerseys. I mean, you couldn't write this stuff. Pretty quickly, Roosevelt's reform against unnecessary roughness and the boring bloodbath barn burners yielded positive results, as evidenced by the fact that football still exists today. Something that was unlikely to be the case at the turn of the 20th century. In this case, Roosevelt was a clear winner. The legacy that he left behind in other realms of participation are a little bit less obvious. He wasn't perfect. Not even close. But I'd be surprised if anyone listening has any doubts as to whether our nation could benefit from another fella like Theodore Roosevelt. He aggressively pursued legislation and reform in the things that mattered most to him, like fairness to the citizens, protection of national wildlife, and the obliteration of the penalty against incomplete passes. He worked hard to establish programs and policies that have served as foundational principles for our young nation, both young then and now. For him, it wasn't about his own personal legacy, nor was it about serving the citizens of his party alone. He was a herdsman, he was an environmentalist, and above all else, he was a leader. Look, regardless of the color of your tie, I think we can all agree that we long for a leader cut from the same cloth as Teddy Roosevelt. I want to thank you for indulging me today in this kind of educational one. I had a bunch of fun learning about it. I hope you did too. Please be on the lookout for my big episode dropping this upcoming Friday when superstar Bushman and real-life frontiersman Roland Welker drops in for another installment of A Talk in the Attic. Please subscribe, review, share, whatever you can do to support. I appreciate it greatly. With that, peace out, y'all.
Boys, we will stop, we will drop, we'll shut them down, and then we'll open up shop. Oh, no, this is how Rough Riders roll. Thank you.